Reading comes from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, and Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is God's word. Does it matter? We uh, don't want to admit to ourselves to what degree death casts a shadow over us. We don't want to admit how much we have to repress and deny the implications of death just to live, just to live a life, just to live every day. Uh, the person who most classically expressed this was probably Leo Tolstoy in his famous work called Confession. And Tolstoy was like the average uh, European intellectual. As he says in the beginning of the Confession, he says that he had been baptized and raised in a particular religion, but he uh, chucked it, he basically dropped it, he understood that as far as he was concerned, there was, he wasn't sure there was anything outside of the, the here and now. He knew he would die someday and that would be it. Didn't bother him. And then he said, around the age of 50, something strange began to happen to me. This is a quote. Things, pardon me, times of perplexity and arrest began to happen more and more often. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate without which uh, much effort on my part, it continued to increase. My name was respected. He was, of course, Leo Tolstoy, a famous writer. I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live. My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, a question seeking an answer without which one cannot live was this. Is there any meaning in life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? 
Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. But soon, not only I will not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have written or done. Why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference will it make whether I do this good thing or that bad thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or to my whole life. But what was so surprising is how we can fail to see this. For a time, it's possible to live intoxicated with life, but as soon as one is sober, it's impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud at that. There's nothing either amusing or witty about it. It's simply cruel and stupid. How often I have been told, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it, just live. But I no longer can do that. Now, what Tolstoy is saying there is, death, inevitable death, makes all of life meaningless unless you do one of two things. One is you just don't think about it. Now, there's a lot of ways to not think about it. Uh, you can do it through tremendous irony and cynicism, or you can do it through kind of, you know, altruistic naivete. There's all sorts of ways of doing it. Is, but what, one is you just don't think about it. You don't think out the implications. You deny, you repress the implications. Or you get a living hope. You get something that gives you not just confidence but joy in the face of death. And the message of Easter is that Jesus Christ is that living hope. Message of Easter is Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He has resurrection power. He's got power over death. But how does that power come? How does it operate? How does it flow? How does it receive? You know, what you, you, there's a tendency to think that the uh, Bible's filled with stories like this. But, you, but right there on the page, what Michelle just read is a third of, of the whole, of all six resurrection accounts in the Bible. Even the Bible is not, it, it's not common. In the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, you've got this one plus, uh, you, you got two that happened in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, in the New Testament, you have three uh, people that Jesus raises from the dead. Then in the book of Acts, you have one woman, Dorcas, who's raised from the dead, and then you have Jesus himself. But what I've noticed in preparing for today, as I was looking at all six of these, I noticed that the stories, the, the miracle accounts, the resurrection accounts, do not simply get across the fact of Jesus' resurrection power, but these accounts show us the shape of, the flow of the power, how it comes, why it comes, to whom it comes, for what it comes, and that's what we're going to look at. We're going to take two, a third of all the resurrection incidents that the Bible records, we're going to take these two and ask those, those four questions. Why does this resurrection power come in anybody's life? Why? To whom? Why? Who? For what? And how? Why? Who? What? How? First, why does this resurrection power come into anybody's life? Why? And the answer of the text is loving grace. Loving grace. Love and grace. First, love. Look at Elijah, and you'll see when he sees this widow, this woman who has taken him in and, and saved his life because he's, he's hiding from his political enemies who want to kill him, and she see, he sees his little boy who's died, her little boy. He takes him upstairs. He stretches himself out on him, literally, face on his face, hand on his hand, and he cries to God. There's some kind of deep emotional involvement, of course, deep emotional identification. He's saying, take me instead or something like that. But you see it even more in Jesus. The thing that's so intriguing about Jesus, in every one of his resurrection 
accounts, every place where he raises somebody from the dead, is what looks like unnecessary emotional involvement. So, for example, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he comes up to Mary and Martha, and he begins to weep with them. They're weeping, and he just weeps. He weeps so profusely that uh, the people around him, this is in John chapter 11, say, look how, he's, look how he loved Lazarus. Before he raises Lazarus, he comes to Mary and Martha who are weeping, and he, and he gets emotionally involved. Why? Why go to that trouble? Jesus knows that in one second, all the tears are going to be wiped away. He's going to raise them from the dead. Everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to say, no more tears. Why go to the trouble of weeping with Mary? Why get emotionally involved? Why let, why let, why let yourself get sucked in? Here, he's about to raise this guy from the dead, but he goes over and he says, don't cry. He gets emotionally involved. In... Um, in, in um, Mark chapter 5, when he raises the little girl from the dead, before he raises her from the dead, he says, down at her bed, he takes the dead girl's hand, and he says, Talitha kum, with astonishing tenderness, he says, the translation there would be, honey, it's time to wake up. Why would he do that? And here's the answer. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ never comes in by itself. It never comes in abstractly. It never comes in nakedly. It always comes in along with, or I should even say through, a profound love relationship with Jesus. Jesus never sends his resurrection power into somebody's life. He goes into somebody's life. He, he sends himself. In some way, his resurrection power is his love. And what that means is you cannot have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in your life unless you have Jesus a profound love relationship in the center of your life. But it's not just, you know, it doesn't just, I didn't say just love. The reason that resurrection power comes into somebody's life is loving grace. Loving grace. See, why does he come to this woman and raise her son from the dead? Because she prays? No, he, she doesn't praise to Jesus. She doesn't pray. Because she's exercising faith? No, she's not exercising faith to Jesus. Because she begs? She's not begging. He does not come into her life out of, because of her compassion and her goodness, but because of his compassion and his goodness. In other words, summary of the first point, the resurrected power of Jesus only, it comes in, when I say loving grace, it comes in free but not cheap. It comes in absolutely unmerited, absolutely unearned, absolutely undeserved. It, has, it, it, it doesn't come in because you're worthy in any way or you make yourself worthy in any way. So it comes in absolutely free, but it doesn't come in cheap. He enters into the life story of this woman. This woman's story was about to end in devastation. He enters right into the middle of that story, and now all the lines of her story, of her life story, converge on him. And the resurrection power of Jesus comes in not because you're good or you're, or you're better or you're wonderful or you're praying, not for any desserts or merit or anything in you, and yet it only comes in with him. It only comes in when Jesus becomes the center of your life and all the lines of your story, of your life story, converge and center on him. Why does the resurrection power come in anybody's life? Number one, loving grace. Number two, to whom does he come? And the answer is to the powerless. The answer to this text is he comes in the life of the powerless or at least those who know 
the illusory, the illusory nature, the, 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 uh, the sham of worldly power and performance. Every, in Hebrews 11.35, looking back at the history of redemption, looking back at the history of Revelation, all the great figures of Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, it says this. The writer says, By faith, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. Women. It says, By faith, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. Well, you say, now, what, shouldn't it say men and women? No. And you'll tell you the reason why. The recipients of virtually all of the miracles of resurrection in the entire Bible are women. The widow gets her son back, 1 Kings 17. The Shunammite woman gets her son back, 2 Kings 4. The widows of the church get Dorcas back, their patroness, essentially their deaconess, a woman who just took care of the poor indigent, uh, you know, the, the, the indigent wi widows of the early church, and their patroness died, Dorcas, and she is raised back, and the widows get her back. And, of course, here we have the widow getting her son back. And, of course, we have Mary and Martha getting Lazarus, their brother, back. And only one time in Mark 5, a little girl is raised for both a father and a mother, which is unusual. There's a guy in there. And when, very unusual, still an exception, because the, the ultimate resurrection, the one in which uh, the, the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the witnesses, all the first eyewitnesses, all the people who first see the angel, first hear the angel, first see Jesus, first hear Jesus, first talk to the resurrected Jesus face to face, they're all women in every one of the gospel accounts. Why? And the answer is this in the Bible. People with power, see women especially then, but now too, and widows in particular, people without power, people excluded from power, people marginalized by the world, people who are pushed to the edges, people, put it, let me put it this way, people with power and people in power in, generally, in general want religion rather than the gospel. They like religion, they find the gospel insulting. And people who've been excluded from power, and this is the wisdom and justice of God that he does this, in general, the people in the world who've been excluded from power and pushed out find the gospel, in general, more coherent. They don't find it as offensive. They don't find it as insulting. Look at the wisdom of God, that, the, that the, the more likely you are to be excluded by the world from power, the more likely you are to get the gospel. What do we mean by religion? Well, religion is pull yourself together. Follow the rules. Emulate the moral paragons of virtue, and you will find whatever. Blessing, divine you know, happiness, nirvana, I mean, all religions the same. It has a sort of a different ending, but all get yourself together, emulate, and the gospel comes and says, you're a moral failure, you're a spiritual failure. You'll never be able to do that. <laughs> and you must look to the one who gave up all power, who was beaten into the dust, who was a victim of injustice, whose life entered in, 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 ended in disaster, the person who won through losing, who triumphed through defeat and service. He paid the price for your failings, and he procures a salvation that can be received only through sheer grace. Now, the fact is that the more in general, in general, not every individual, but in general, the more powerful you are, the more secure you are, the more in charge you are, the more you find the gospel message an insult, an offense. And it's the wisdom and justice of God that in general, the people who are furthest from the center of worldly power tend to see through the idolatry, tend to see through the sham 
of worldly power and performance, and when they hear the gospel, they get it. And it's not just that people without power, or people who at least understand the, the illusory nature of power, are most likely to understand the gospel of Easter, but Easter and resurrection power, when it comes in, then turns you, to your heart, toward the oppressed, toward the powerless, toward the poor. Why does Jesus Christ, why does Jesus Christ send his resurrection power into this woman's life? Because most of us are individualistic, Western, modern people, when you read this, all you identify with is her emotional pain. You say, isn't it wonderful what Jesus has done? He has healed her emotional pain. Yeah, right. But that's not all. You're forgetting something. There, there was no security, social security. There was no safety net. A woman who dies, who has all of her children dead and her only son dead, is on her way into utter poverty, into complete isolation, into total marginalization. And Jesus Christ uses his resurrection power to heal her socially and economically. He uses his power, her, his power to heal her poverty, not just her emotional pain. And because that's the, what the resurrection is all about. The resurrection, Christianity is unique in that it sees the future that God is bringing about as a material future, not a future in which we all become sort of spirit beings or we all go back into the all soul or all, we all live as disembodied spirits. No, new heavens and new earth, resurrection, the body, the material world. And what this means is God is against disease and he's against uh, oppression and he's against poverty, and he's against hunger, and he's against nakedness and peril and sword. And the resurrection means that God didn't just invent the soul and the body, he's going to redeem both soul and body, and it's our mission, people who get the gospel of Easter, and it gets right in the center of our hearts. We care about the poor, we care about the oppressed, and we know that God's going to do something about it because he cares about them too. So to whom does this resurrection power come? To those without power those whose hearts go out to those without power, those who, who are like in their hearts those without power because they realize that salvation is by grace alone. Number three, we said, why does it come into someone's life? Loving grace. To whom does it come? Those, the powerless. Number three, for what does the resurrection power come? And it comes to persuade. One of the great things about the resurrection and about resurrection in the Bible, is that though, of course, it's emotionally satisfying and, and all that sort of thing, but it's also tremendously convincing and helpful to the mind. It persuades the mind. It deals with our doubts. Quick example. Uh, take a look at the very… What, what's the climax of 1 Corinthians… Uh, pardon me, 1 Kings 17, this first narrative? What's the climax? What does the woman say at the end? Does she say, then the woman said to Elijah, now I'm happy. Now I'm emotionally satisfied. Now I'm filled with joy. By the way, those are all true, of course. She got her son back for crying out loud. But that's not the climax. That's not what she says is the climax. She says, now I know. Now I know that your message is the truth. The resurrection that she just saw convinces her mind. It gets rid of her doubts. Now she knows. You know, she had doubts. He was living with her, and he was, she was taking care of him and all that sort of thing. But now I know. And I want, you, I want you to take a look. The same thing happens in Luke 7. What's the climax of the resurrection? Of course, the woman is healed emotionally. Of course, the woman is healed socially. And, but, but everyone says, wow. They get convinced that this is someone very unusual, very special, very extraordinary. 
Now, in fact, they don't even read the sign as far as they should read. But the reason they say this is a prophet, a great prophet, is they are, they're noticing the similarities between what just happened and 1 Kings 17, the account in the life of Elijah. They're noticing the account. They're noticing a widow, a son, brought back to life. Notice how they both end, and he gave the, the widow back her son. And they say, wow, this must be a great prophet, but boy, there's more, it's more than a prophet you got here. Even they don't, re- they don't quite read the sign because, you see, the resurrection is always intense, intense to show you, to help you know the truth of who Jesus is. And, of course, what you have is a difference. When Elijah cries out, that's how he gets the boy raised. He cries out to God, but notice Jesus doesn't cry to God. Jesus doesn't pray. Elijah cries three times. Jesus speaks once. Elijah yells. Jesus just talking kind of like this. Elijah's working up a sweat. Jesus is not working up a sweat. Jesus just speaks to this. You know, there's an irony what Luke says. He says, the dead man got up. doesn't say the formerly dead man. The power of Jesus' word is this. Elijah was calling to the one who had the power to raise the dead, but Jesus Christ is the one who has the power to raise the dead. That's why he doesn't have to make a phone call. (laughs) Or put it this way, Jesus Christ is not just a prophet calling on the Lord. He is the Lord to whom all prophets call. The resurrection shows us now we know who he is. Now, this is very practical. Can I just take a second on this? People constantly say to me, I find Christianity interesting or maybe attractive in this and that way, but how do I know it's true? How do I know it's true? How do I know? Well, look at what the widow says. Think about the resurrection. See, most of us still believe that faith and thinking are opposites. See, a lot of people say, I believe. Don't talk to me. Don't give me evidence. Don't let me think. I'm not, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to believe it. I don't want to think about it. I'm believing it. These are two different things. I don't want to think. I believe. I don't believe. See? But that's not the way gospel, that's not the way Christian faith works. That's not the way Christian faith works. Paul doesn't say we walk by faith, not by reason. He says we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is opposed to sight. Faith is going on what we know to be true rather than what we feel at the moment. But it doesn't say we walk by faith, not by reason. And the fact is, the more you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the more you will come more and more you'll find your mind being helped, your mind being persuaded, your doubts starting to go away, faith getting stronger, until you finally get to the place where you say, now I know. Let me just give you two examples. I could give you 20, but I'll just give you two, okay? First of all, and this is my favorite one almost, let's think about this aspect of Jesus' resurrection. Every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all say that women were the first witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, keeping in mind in, the, in, in those old patriarchal societies, women had no legal rights. Uh, their, their testimony was not admissible evidence in court. And if you were going to fabricate, if you were going to fabricate uh, stories, if you're going to write up accounts of how uh, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to people, you would never in a million years, in a million years in those days, ever make up stories that said he appeared only to women. These accounts would have been extremely embarrassing to the early Christians. In those patriarchal societies, with those terrible attitudes people had toward women, they would have been extremely uh, embarrassing and difficult for early Christians to have to defend. What this means is these, these things must have happened. The only possible explanation for these accounts 
existence is that they happened. That's the only possible reason why they'd be in, in existence. But wait a minute, if they really happened, and if they had to happen, then what did those women see? You see, you're thinking, aren't you? And you're saying, wow, maybe it's true. Well, let me give you another quick one. Eastern religions never had too much trouble talking about human, divine human beings, human beings that were kind of filled with divinity. Because Eastern religions believe in an infinite God who's not personal, a force. So they believe that certain people are sort of suffused with divine consciousness. And they can talk about God-men, you know, human beings with divinity in them. And then on the other hand, you have Western religions. Western religions believe in, um, uh, they, don't, they believe in personal but not infinite gods. Eastern religions believe in an infinite, not personal God. Western religions believe in Zeus, Hermes, you know, or, you know, your German Thor and things like that. They believed in personal but not infinite gods, not all-knowing and omnipotent gods. And those gods also sometimes took on human form. And they came down and had little escapades and had children and things like that. And uh, so in Western religions and Eastern religions, both had, had no trouble talking about divine human types of these figures. But the Jews were different. The Jews had absolutely a unique understanding of God in the whole world. They believed in a, both a personal and infinite God. His personality and his infinity did not each other, eat, eat, eat each other up in a sense. They didn't, you know, they weren't at war with each other. He was utterly personal, utterly infinite, utterly transcendent, utterly holy. It, it was a capital offense to even try to draw God or depict God or even make a picture of him. God could not have a material being, could not have a material form. You couldn't even say the name of God. He was that holy. But here's what we know. Historic fact. Immediately after the death of Jesus Christ, something happened that has never happened before and has never happened since. Thousands and thousands of Jews began to worship a human being as God. Thousands. Now, by the way, plenty of Jews have had this view of the Messiah, that view, this is the Messiah. But we're talking about worship. In other words, thousands of Jews went against everything they'd ever learned, their entire culture, all of their upbringing, every fiber of their being, every bit of their worldview, everything they knew. Thousands of them began to worship an individual. It never happened before, never has happened since. What possible explanation is for this incredibly inexplicable historical event? And St. Paul says it's simple. Jesus kept showing up. He kept coming around, and not just once or twice. You know, you're not going to get thousands of Jews believing that 12 guys said, we've seen him three times. Oh, well, of course. You're forget- you're, you're, you're not understand. You don't remember your, your, the- your sociology, your history, your ethnography, your philosophy. You don't understand if you think that would happen. Jesus Christ, in 40 days, we're told, repeatedly after his, his death and his resurrection, over and over and over again, Paul said he kept appearing to people, dozens of people, hundreds of people, once... He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people at once, over and over and over again. We ate with them. We talked with them. We touched them. Do you have a better explanation for what happened? You say, well, I can't believe in the resurrection. Think. And the more you think about the resurrection, the more you're going to come to the place where you may say, now I know. So you see, the resurrection comes through loving grace flows toward people who understand they're not going to be saved through power and performance, moves in and helps change our thinking, strengthen our mind, and lastly, now the last question is how. How is all this possible? 
Now, the widow of Zarephath had the right question. You notice what she says? She has her boy in her arms, and she says what? She says, how? I can't believe in a God who would let this happen. No, she's not a modern person. She doesn't say, I deserve a good life. This shouldn't have happened to me. Who can I sue? No, she's not a modern person. Here's what she says. She says to Elijah, has my son died because of my wrongdoing and my life? Now, the reason why she asked this, and the reason why this is hard for us to understand is because we're not like her. We're modern people. And if you want to be culturally sensitive, don't you? You're New Yorkers, aren't you? And don't you want to be culturally sensitive? Then come with me. Let me give you two little insights that will help you understand why she's asking this question and why it's a valid question. Number one, first of all, she's not an individualistic, modern, Western person. We have a tendency to think of our, we have individual aspirations. We hope that we'll individually be successful or happy or that sort of thing. But in those days, you never thought of yourself as an individual. You thought of your family. You thought of yourself as part of a family. You, you, only, you only aspired for your family to grow, your family to prosper, your family to be happy. And you didn't have, you, you had no desire for somehow some kind of individual happiness apart from your family. The family was a whole. And when someone in the family succeeded, the family succeeded. And if someone in the family failed, the family was disgraced. Now, you and I don't feel that way, do we? We tend to say, if someone does something wrong, they should bear it on their own head. That shouldn't bother me. You know, my brother is a failure, but I'm not, and no one should cast that on me. Listen, that's a very modern, Western, post-enlightenment, view of individual rights and so on, and it's okay if you want to have that view, but you mustn't think that everybody has to think that way. It's, it's actually a fairly narrow view. Only a few people have it. Most people don't believe it. Most people that have ever lived don't believe it. So you, you have to understand, when she says, has my son died because of the things that I have done wrong, what she's saying is not nuts. And Elijah doesn't think it's nuts. It's a question. And the second question, of course, that the second thing that makes it hard for New Yorkers to understand her question is that we don't like this idea. What she see, notice she says, my sins has he paid for things that I did wrong. And we have this idea of payment for, for sin. And we modern people say, why would, if, if there's a loving God, why would God ever want payment? If, why doesn't God just accept us? Why doesn't God just forgive us? Why would God want payment? Well, as we said 12 weeks ago, somebody, if any of you remember that sermon on forgiveness? Let me just help you with this. Let me. Everybody knows that if you are really badly wronged and really badly hurt, there's a debt there. If somebody has wronged you, there's a debt, and it doesn't just go away. There's only two things you can do with that debt. Either you can try to make them pay for it. You can hurt them. You can vilify them. You can make them. You can, you can fill their life with suffering. And you know what? As you do it, you'll feel the debt being paid down. You'll feel like that, um, that person is paying for it, and more and more you'll feel better. If you can just see them squirm and see them writhe and see them in pain, you'll start to feel a little better. Of course, if you try to get the debt paid for that way, as we said some weeks ago, it'll make you a bad person, a horrible person, a hard person, but the debt's being paid down. And it's no longer sort of on your chest. The other possibility is not to have the person pay for it, but you pay for it. If you forgive a debt, it doesn't just go away. You have to pay for it. 
It's very costly and very, very difficult if you forgive. So when you see the person, you want to claw their eyes out and you, you, you're cordial. That hurts. When you talk to somebody about them and you want to run them down and you don't, that hurts. When you're walking along and you want to put little pins in them in your imagination and you, and you, and you want to hope that they, they suffer and you want to hope that they're embarrassed and you want, you want to hope that bad things happen to them and you don't, that hurts. It's difficult. It's costly. But if you do it, if you're willing to pay the price of forgiveness, which is very hard, slowly you will pay the price down, the debt down, and you won't feel this awful thing on your chest anymore, and you'll feel freedom, and the anger won't distort you anymore. But don't you see what I'm saying? Even a wrong between you and another person, you can't just forgive it and then somehow the debt goes away. Somebody has to pay. It has to be paid. It's there. It's irreducible. And my dear friends, if if a sin against little old you and little old me creates a debt that cannot be dismissed but has to be paid by somebody, how much more is that true of wrongs against your Creator God? It is absolutely impossible for wrongs to just go away. Somebody has to pay for them. That's true psychologically, it's true sociologically, it's certainly true spiritually. So when Elijah cries out and says, Father, is that why he died? See, she's saying, has my son died for my sin? And when he's resurrected, it's God's way of saying no. Okay, but then where will the payment come from for her sin? And you see, the answer of the gospel is, God was able to say to the widow of Zarephath, no, your son did not die for your sin. My son will die for your sin. When Jesus Christ goes over and touches the coffin, everybody stops. You know why they're so amazed? Because the Old Testament law was that if you touched something dead, you couldn't go to the tabernacle, you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't go into God. You, know, you were you're unclean. Why? Because the Old, Testament, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, the clean laws, were God's way of symbolizing for us and teaching us that death is a curse. Death is part of the result of sin. But Jesus Christ comes over and takes the curse. He gets defiled. Why? to show how it is that this woman can get her son back. He's probably thinking, when he comes over and says to her, don't cry, he might be thinking of his own father. Because the only way that she gains her son is if her, his father loses his son. The only way that she gets her son back is if on Mount Calvary, the father loses his son. And there was nobody around to say to him that night, don't cry. That's how the resurrection power can come in free. That's how it can come in undeserved. Because this, the, this boy did not die for her sin. But she's right to say, well, then who did? Either I'm going to have to pay for my sin, or if God forgives me, God will have to pay. And he did. On the cross, when Jesus stretched himself out and imparted life to the world. So here is what Tolstoy wanted. This is a living hope. Here's how you get it. Admit there's a, a debt you can't pay. Look at what Jesus Christ did for you until it moves you. That takes time. And then lastly, ask God to accept you because of what Jesus did. And in will come the resurrection power. And then you'll spend the rest of your life, because I'm, I'm spending the rest of my life doing this. What does it mean to live the Christian life? Finding out how all the lines of your story converge on him and find their resolution in him. And don't you see now, this is what Tolstoy wanted. Here is the living hope. It doesn't matter what comes. 
It doesn't matter. You know that we sang about it. it in that famous hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, we sing, ours, the cross, the graves, the skies. What does that mean? Come on, crosses, troubles. Come on, graves. Ours, the graves. Ours, the cross. Yeah, the worst that can happen to you if you're in Christ is the best thing that can happen to you. It just makes you, When Jesus Christ took that little girl's hand and said, honey, it's time to wake up, he was saying, if I have you by my hand, if we have, if I have a relationship with you, even the worst enemy that a human being has, death, will become nothing but a nice night's sleep. You've got nothing to be afraid of. Finally, you've got a hope with which you can face absolutely anything. And by the way, if there's anybody here who says, yeah, well, I've got one problem. These are stories are really nice, but I knew, I knew my, little, my sister died of leukemia, or I knew somebody that had a son that died of this or that, and where was God? Look, as wonderful as these miracles are, they're only symbols of the real thing. This, this is a wonderful miracle, you know, the, the boy getting up, but it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a resurrection backward, you know. It's a backward resurrection. He's going to have to die anyway. I mean, as wonderful as it is, it's only a resurrection backward. Here's what you want. You want a resurrection forward. You want a resurrection into the new life. You want a resurrection into that future in which everything sad is going to come untrue. He was resurrected back into the sad world. Well, we, but if you want it, if you want the resurrection, everyone who wants it and who gets that resurrection power in the way we're talking about tonight will eventually be resurrected forward. And as wonderful as it is, these resurrection stories, they're just symbols of the real thing. Don't you want it? And if you have it in your life now, you can be like Elijah, stretching yourself out on people, emotionally identifying with them, sighing deeply, crying to God, and where do you see other people quickened and made alive through you? What a life. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us what we need. At Easter, there is a promise here, there's a claim here, and some of us have never even taken hold of it, never even understood it, never believed it. We ask that you'd help us believe it now. And the rest of us, there's a lot of the rest of us who have to admit that though we believe it, we're not making much use of it. Give us the hope that enables us to face the crosses and graves of this present life. Give us the passion and confidence and joy that will enable us, like Elijah, to stretch ourselves out on people in love, face to face, hand to hand, and be a conduit for that resurrection power ourselves into their lives. Give us Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. In his name we pray. Amen.